Amen. You may be seated. That is Psalm 69. We'll be singing that throughout the course of this new sermon series, which is on partly on Psalm 69. So, thank you, Pastor Scott and everyone, for working that out for us. We're going to pick up our series this morning on the life of David. We looked at David and Goliath, how to beat bullies. We looked at David, David and Saul, how to defy tyrants. We looked at David and Nabal, how to suffer fools. And today we're going to begin for a few weeks looking at David and the Amalekites. And that is how to face trials in the Lord, wisely and well. You see, this is um, perhaps, well, no, this is one of David's greatest tragedies that he faced in his entire life. It's seldomly spoken of. In fact, this chapter is very hard to find sermons on. It's, uh, it's not politically correct. There's the God-ordered genocide of the Amalekites, um, which our society does not like, and which we will cover and talk about in the weeks to come. Um, but it is a, a chapter that is often skipped, but I believe there is a lot here for us to, to learn from. David's wives and his children, along with all of the families of his men, were kidnapped and sold into sex slavery um, to the Amalekites. You can imagine how terrible that would be. Probably can't imagine it, actually. But then to top it all off, David is then held under trial and suspicion, and his own people want to stone him to death, though they don't ever get around to it. So it's a major tragedy. And we're going to be looking into it. We're going to learn a lot about church history. We're going to learn a lot about the history of redemption. And we're also going to learn um, throughout the series how to face trials as unto the Lord. We're going to try to gather as many principles as we can. I don't think any of the the how to suffer aspects of the sermon series will be new to any of you. But perhaps God would remind you um, in a time like this. And as we go through this whole series, we want to be consciously aware of the fact that many of us have suffered great tragedies, and those tragedies might still be fresh. And there are people in our church who are suffering great tragedies, and all of us as Christians will one day suffer and be able to identify with the words of Psalm 69 that came from the pen of David. So before we get into our text, let's go to the, word, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for gathering us in your presence. We acknowledge that you have um, sovereignly and graciously invited us and caused us to be here. We're also aware, Father, of our insignificance and our unworthiness to be in your presence. So we thank you for shedding the blood of your Son that we might have access to you. That we might sit at your feet and hear your word proclaimed through a man. Pray, Father, for me personally that you would fill me with your spirit. That I might speak your words faithfully and accurately. I pray that everyone in this room would not be made dull of hearing. But would be given the gift of hearing your word. That it might go into our hearts. Melting our hearts and transforming us more into the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name and all who agree, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, 
Ziklag is where David and his men and their families have been held up hiding from Saul. They're outside of the promised land in the land of Philistia. There was a time where David and his men could run around the hills like goats and hide from Saul, but there's thousands of them now. Men have been coming out to him, bringing their whole families. And so now he is in Ziklag. He's the king of Ziklag, and he's waiting on the Lord to kill Saul before he can return and enter into his kingdom. So that's why David is in Philistia in Ziklag. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, returning from a voyage, returning from a campaign, on the third day, interesting, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters, their children, taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. I think it's important in a sermon like this to try your best to identify with these people. And I certainly didn't time this sermon series with the most gloomiest day of the year. Um, We don't want this to overwhelm us. Um, But it is probably impossible for us to identify with them totally. But it is important for us to at least empathize and try to stand in their shoes if we can. Verse 4, let me read that again. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. And Noam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So after a long campaign away, fighting the wars that God had caused him and called him to fight, David and his men are finally home. They're exhausted, fatigued. And they no doubt are ready for a home-cooked meal. They're high in spirits, tired, but high in spirits, high on victory, filled up with the spoils, righteous spoils of a just war. But they're no doubt ready to see their wives and children, relax, have some R&R, etc. Anybody who's been away on a long deployment can identify with this. Anyone who's worked offshore, you can identify. It's good to come home. It's been a long time. But as they approached Ziklag, the western sky was filled with smoke. And their hearts began to fall in their chest and their pace picked up. And their fears turned into reality when they walked through the burnt gates of Ziklag. Because the city was a ghost town. No more families. No more cries of children. No more wives. No home-cooked meals. The streets had become the the place of jekylls and buzzards. And they wept, it says, until they could not weep anymore. Physically exhausted from weeping and screaming and wailing. You know, they had become as Job when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. 
You can finish this, can't you? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And the Lord certainly did take away from them. He took away everything from them, their possessions, right? Every reason they could possibly imagine for wanting to live. Their homes, their children, their wives, their families, their legacy, taken from them in an instance. And you have to understand, they understand the degree to which the Amalekites are um, raping the women. That's precisely what is happening. We'll talk more about that later. Um, But there's a reason they weren't killed. The text summarizes their heartbreak this way. Look at 1 Samuel 30 verse 4. Then David and the people were with him, raised their voices and wept. And so they had no more strength to weep. And David wrote on this occasion, he wrote a psalm to this. It's Psalm 69. And I hope from now on, anytime you read Psalm 69, you now you know the historical context and can understand it a little bit better. Look at what he's writing here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And those of you who understand the Psalms realize that this is the voice of Christ ultimately. Notice what David says. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Now, this is an image of judgment. You know, waters save, but waters also judge like the word of God, and they are all the way up to his neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. You see, he has no handle. He has no way of escape. He has no refuge whatsoever. He is sinking deep in the mire. He's up to his neck, and there is nothing to grab onto. His life is slipping away. His joy is gone. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I mean, imagine the trial. And on top of all of that, imagine the confusion. See, we're told that the Amalekites have taken them. They don't know that, I suppose. They don't exactly know what's happened. Confusion and fear and heartbreak. I mean, this... Really couldn't, a worse trial couldn't be imagined, honestly. But it's not over with. Because you'll see in verse 6, that while David was greatly distressed, the people spoke of stoning him. You know, they're, they're, heartbreaking, they're heartbroken too, and, and their bitterness rolls uphill to blame David. It says they're bitter in soul, they're angry, polluted with wrath, and they want to stone him. Which means either that they want to hold a trial and execute him, or they want to kill him like a mob, the way they wanted to kill Jesus with a mob of stoning. You see, David isn't just in a trial, he's on trial. And that very much is how it works very often in life. Often in life, when you are in a trial... Your enemies will use that to put you on trial. That's precisely what happened to Jesus as he was executed as a blasphemer, as an insurrectionist. That's exactly what happened to Job as his cabinet members came around and blamed him for secret sins. He was was not only going through a trial, but he was on trial. That's one of the reasons why a trial is called a trial. You can see. So now David has lost his wives, his family, his city, his possessions, And he's lost everything, his reputation, his name, his throne, his friends. Wow. 
And of course, you understand that David is the prototype of the true son of David who gave away everything himself for us. Amen? Amen. I want you, and I don't want to have to say that over and over again, but I want you throughout this whole series to realize and to see through the life of David that we're actually talking about Jesus. Do you understand? Yes. He's like Paul, though. David is like Paul in his last days in 2 Timothy 4.16. Paul said, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He's like Job, who after losing everything, had his wife come to him and say, Curse God and die. I mean, I said earlier that you couldn't imagine a worse trial, but it got worse for David. It got worse. So that now, not only is he going through this trial, he's going through it alone, totally alone. It's like Jesus when he was denied by Peter. And the Bible says that all of the disciples fled and abandoned him. David wrote this as well. Look, Psalm 69, verse 4. Look at what he writes. He captures this angle of his pain He says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? You see, he's under the attack and the slanders and the trial of persecution. So... Let's talk about this uh, trial a little bit. I, I want really just to analyze this trial that he's going through, and maybe at least today, it's our first sermon in the series. I don't want to get too far ahead of us. Come away with one principle about how to suffer well. None of us are being trained to be the king of Israel, so we probably won't have to face this degree of trial, right? Thank God. But you are being trained for your calling. And that means, by definition, you must face certain trials, many of which will be trials you go through and many of which will be you being put on trial. That's just part of life, and that's part of God's training program. And we need to learn how to deal with it well. Amen? So first thing, I'm just going to say three things about this as far as an analysis of it. This is a satanic trial. Okay? Satan loves trials because Satan is a prosecutor. He lives for trials. Satanas means accuser of the brethren. He lives to lay a charge on you or on us. He is the accuser. He is the deceiver, but he is ultimately a slanderer. This is why the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed Satan. Because when he died on the cross paying for your sins by his blood, the devil no longer has any basis to accuse you. You see what I mean? I mean, the prosecutor doesn't have a, 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 you know, a lot of power when the penalty has already been paid. He may stand and he may prosecute you, and you might say, that's true. What of it? I cannot be condemned. Jesus has been condemned in my place. I know that's true. Jesus says he forgives me, and he's working on cleansing me. You see, it takes away the devil's weapons, if you believe. But the devil is an accuser, and he loves when you're on trial, and he loves to try you. And that's, what, um, <clears throat> and that's um, why Paul tells us that when we're struggling in this life, that we're wrestling not against flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It means ultimately you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And that's, it's important for him to say that to us because we oftentimes think whatever we're going through, it's just physical. 
It's just material. It's just those people over there. We very oftentimes forget to recognize that the trials we go through are very oftentimes afflicted on us by Satan. Or he's involved. He's meddling. He's whispering. You see, the marks of Satan are all over this particular account. First of all, they're slandering their king, right? When a ship hits a storm, it's natural for you to look up at the guy at the wheel, the captain. But what's godly is to pray for him, right? Not to mutiny. But it's very natural to mutiny when you go through a storm. The devil loves to use trials as a context to accuse everyone. He loves to do that. He loves to use storms as a pretext for mutiny. And this is precisely what he is doing here. They've all undergone, undergone a terrible calamity. But David says, how can I restore your wives and children? I didn't steal them. You see, the devil has jumped in here and he's using this, this situation as an opportunity to cause division and to accuse and slander. But you can also see that they are bitter in soul. You see that as well. What is bitterness? It's unresolved anger and wrath. The Bible says that you are not to go to bed angry, which is a metaphor, by the way. Sometimes you can hash it out in the morning, right? Sometimes you just need a good night's sleep. But as a metaphor, you don't want to let your anger go on for a long period of time because it will provide what for the devil? A foothold, which is a, a vantage point from which he can attack. If, if he has a vantage point, if he has a strategic spot, easily guarded, he can attack you. And we see right here, these people are filled with bitterness, unresolved wrath and anger that the devil is using, and also slander. This has the marks of Satan all over it. It's important for us to be able to recognize that. But it's even more clear because the Amalekites don't kill everyone. They steal the women and the children. That's one of the primary marks of satanic attack. Because Satan has always wanted the women to raise up his godless offspring. In fact, the war underneath all wars is the war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So just as Pharaoh tried to take Sarah into his harem, and Abimelech tried to take um, Rebekah, and Pharaoh, the next Pharaoh, tried to kill all the little baby Hebrew boys, keep the girls... Satan has always wanted the women to raise up his godless offspring. And he has also always wanted the children because he can enroll them in his discipleship programs and raise them up as good little satanic minions, just as the story with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why is it that Nebuchadnezzar takes the women and the children? Now you understand why. Satan has always acted this particular way, and he certainly acts that way today as well. But perhaps the greatest mark of Satan in this trial is that he's trying to get David killed. See, David is the one through whom the Messiah will be born. And so he tries to kill him and accuse him and slander him. It's a messianic attack. You see, Jesus said to Peter, right before he was going to his crucifixion, he said, Peter, Satan is trying to sift you like wheat. Why did he have to say that to Peter? Why did he have to say to Peter, Satan is trying to use this trial that you're going through to cause apostasy in your life and to sift you? Why did Jesus have to tell Peter that? Because very oftentimes we don't know. Satan is a 
liar. He is an angel of light. And he does a lot of his things and a lot of his operations outside of our notice. So I think one of the first principles we can gather this morning, and it's not our primary principle, it's that when you are suffering, when you're under trial, you need to be alert to satanic attack. Amen? You need to at least ask, am I going through something physical? Yes, I'm going through something physical. Health crisis, perhaps. Is this something mathematical? I'm having a financial crisis. Yes, it's mathematical. Okay. But is there a spiritual element here? Is the devil and his lies involved? You have to consider that if you're going to suffer wisely and well. Are you going through a a trial in your family or at work or with various relationships? You have to be aware. Is Satan trying to sift me? Is Satan trying to ruin me? Is Satan trying to sift them or ruin them? Where is he involved in this? You see, if you can name him, if you can see him, that takes away quite a bit of his power. Amen? All right, let's move on. Also, this is not just a satanic trial with spiritual dimensions. It's also a physical one. There's humans involved. These are Amalekites. They are real humans. Anytime you allow unresolved wrath to, to stew for a long period of time, the devil's going to use you. Right? Anytime you believe lies, the devil's going to use you or lie to you. You see, the devil can really have no power over us except that he work our mouths like puppets. But he cannot work our mouths like puppets or deceive our minds unless he has a foothold. And so we have to be ever vigilant to make sure he doesn't have a foothold. This is why Jesus said to Peter in the very same context, he said to Peter, you remember, get behind me, Satan. Now, nobody wants to be called Satan, right? <laughs> but Jesus called his, one of his favorite disciples Satan. Why? Because Satan uses people. Satan uses people. And that's exactly what's going on with the Amalekites. Their entire culture was satanic. Their culture was cannibalistic. They were engaged in ritual abortions. They sex trafficked. Honestly, it doesn't get worse than the Amalekites. And you can see later on that God has called judgment on their entire nation and that they would eventually be eradicated completely. But the devil is using his people to attack God's people. The age-old story. But then finally, this is our third analysis point, is that this suffering is ultimately from God. All suffering is ultimately from God. And it's very important to say this. You don't ever stop with, this is from Satan. You don't ever stop with, this is from the Amalekites. You must always conclude at the end of the day that says, ultimately everything is from the hand of the Lord. Amen? This is our number one principle. You must know from whose hand comes your trial. It's always from God. Now, God does not cause us to sin or tempt us to sin. right? God is not responsible for the actions of the devil or the Amalekites, but God is the ultimate cause behind all things. How are we to understand these things? I'm not exactly sure, but the Bible is very clear. Just as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord though he was being attacked by demons and people. Listen to what um, 1 Samuel 16, 14 says. It says, 
Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Can't get around that. God uses demons to torment. He also uses humans, Romans 9.17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Do you see God's sovereignty in your suffering? You must see that. All suffering ultimately comes from the hand of the Lord. And so, yes, Satan brings trials and and God raises up people as well. But he's doing it for your good. He's doing it for your glory. And we can take solace in the fact that he is sovereign even over our trials. Yes? Can you think of any reasons why he might want to raise up a Pharaoh to persecute you? You can probably think of some reasons. Let me just ask it to you this way. What's more healthy for you, the praises of men or the hate of men? What's more healthy for us? It's an obvious answer, isn't it? Very oftentimes, God makes people hate us and raises up haters so that we would be weaned from our addiction to praise. And that'll do it. You ever want your name in the headlines? Be careful what you wish for, right? Yeah, God uses the devil and God uses people, but ultimately, as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And here's the thing. He loves you. He loves us. He works all things together for our good. Amen. He has given us his son. Would he not give you all good things in due season? So understanding, and this is the most important thing, I believe, to understand, that God is sovereign over the trial. And he loves you. And he's all-powerful. And he sent his son for you. But I don't understand why he's doing it. That's okay. Just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there isn't one. Amen? So you can trust him, and you can be patient, and you can model yourself after David, who does what? Strengthens himself in the Lord and waits on the Lord. How do we handle trial? Number one principle, you must know whose hand it comes from. Your ever-loving, ever-faithful Father. I'm going to leave you with this story. John Calvin, I've been, I've been reading some, uh, some history uh, books on John Calvin, a great hero of the faith, one of my heroes of the faith. He's a man that, that we owe so much to. We owe our freedom to him. Ask me later why I say that. Our constitution, our form of government, our political freedom. We owe our understanding of salvation by grace through faith. You know, we understand so much and enjoy so much because of John Calvin. He gave his life to serve the church. We know that throughout his entire life, he was persecuted. He had 14 members of his own church have their tongues cut out and burned at the stake. His co-pastor was dismembered and burned at the stake. He was run out of his home, exiled, Even by the people who invited him to come, he was then later kicked out, then later asked to come back, right? He was slandered and lied against and persecuted. Assassins were sent to kill him. And on top of all of that, he lived perpetually with bad health in a day when there was not exactly, you know, what we think of as modern medicine. A man who gave so much and yet suffered so much, God Use the suffering to train him for what he was supposed to do. Isn't that something? 
But even still today, John Calvin is slandered by the church. He is seen as the one of the greatest villains in church history. And oftentimes the villains are seen as heroes. We really are confused. Right? Now, John Calvin was a great man, is a great man. And he should definitely be someone that we honor and remember well. But I bring up him because at the end of his life, in great agony and great pain, he always kept his mind. He was lucid until the very last breath. He even stated that he could feel, he was, these are his last dying words, he could feel death coming over him. That's how lucid he was. God, for whatever reason, wanted him to keep his mental faculties to the very end. And his last words were this. He said, Father, Lord, you bruise me. But it's enough to know that it's your hand. You see, at the end of his life, he knew that the most important thing to handle trial well was to see it from the sovereign, loving hand of God. Even if you don't understand. Right? Even if you don't get it. Even if it's painful, to know that is all you need to know. Amen? Let's all stand. Actually, no, let's stay seated.